The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Hi there. Welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, how to support LGBTQIA youth in their coming out process. Presented by Dr. Alex Karoglian. Remember, your feedback is important to us. Please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fall webinar series focusing on youth mental health and trauma and the unique role that parents, educators, and communities play in fostering resilience in youth. This series is brought to you by Rhode Island Student Assistance Services in partnership with the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Colleen Judge. I'm Director of School-Based Services for Rhode Island Student Assistance Services, and I thank you for joining this learning experience on supporting LGBTQIA youth in their coming out process. Located below this video, you will see a description box with links to our website and Facebook page where we'll let you know when more content like this will be released. In addition, don't forget to complete the post survey so we can get your input on topics for future webinars. We use the feedback that you gave us in the spring to develop topics for this fall series, so your feedback is really important. By completing the survey, you'll have the ability to receive contact hours and a chance to win a $100 gift card. We are extremely fortunate to bring you Alex Karoglian. Uh, he's got a lot of degrees, so I'm going to give you just a little bit of information about him. Alex is a medical doctor, and he's also got a master's degree in neurosciences and in public health. Alex is associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Harvard Medical School Sexual and Gender Minority Health Equity Initiative. He directs the national LGBTQIA health education center at the Fenway Institute. He established the Massachusetts General Hospital Psychiatry Gender Identity Program and is clerkship director for fourth year elective in sexual and gender minority health at Harvard Medical School. So he's certainly someone everyone looks to. He's authored over 70 articles and book chapters and I could probably go on and on, but I'm just going to thank you again for your interest in this very timely topic. And I'm now very pleased to turn it over to Dr. Karoglian. I uh, appreciate being here. It's wonderful to connect with everyone attending today. I, well, the topic for today is how to support LGBTQI plus youth through the coming out process. And I hope to have some time, I know we started a few minutes late, but I hope to have some time at the end for discussion with you all as well. Please feel free to post questions in the chat in the meantime, and hopefully we'll be able to get to them. As Colleen mentioned, I'm at the National LGBTQI Plus Health Education Center at the Fenway Institute, and we have many resources on our website focused on LGBTQI Plus health, webinars by national experts, interactive learning modules, best practice guidelines, recordings from our national conferences. All of this is available for free and can be found at lgbtqiahealtheducation.org. This is one of our many briefs on our website. This happens to be on creating a transgender health program. This morning, I'm going to talk about some important concepts and terminology related to sexual and gender minority youth, which are relevant to be able to support young people during their coming out experiences to help understand the relationship between stigma and inequities experienced by sexual and gender minority folks. So what is the adverse impact that stigma has on 
LGBTQI plus young people. And we'll talk about how to have effective and sensitive communication with LGBTQI plus youth and build inclusive, culturally responsive environments for them to thrive in. There are a lot of concepts and terms that get used when we first start focusing on LGBTQI plus youth and how best to affirm and support them. Some of these terms can be overwhelming and confusing at first, so let's go through this all together to make sure we're on the same page. First big point to make is that sexual orientation and gender identity are not the same thing. These are two different experiences, two different concepts. Everyone has both a sexual orientation and a gender identity. Each of us has one of each, and the concepts and terms we used 20 years ago are different than the ones we used 10 years ago, five years ago, even a year or two ago. I'm hearing new terms, particularly from young uh, sexual and gender minority people in the last, say, four to six months even, that I hadn't heard a year or two ago. So part of this is a very rapidly moving linguistic revolution. The second component of this is that the way a given person identifies will evolve throughout their life as well. So a young person may initially identify as straight and later identify as gay or queer. Someone may initially identify as a boy and later identify as a girl, for example. So when we, in healthcare, for example, ask these questions, we don't just do it once breathe a sigh of relief, check a box and move on. We consider this a dynamically evolving demographic variable for each person and ask these questions every year, if not every six months. First big concept here is that of sex assigned at birth. When babies are born in most countries and cultures around the world, they're typically assigned one of two sexes based on physical characteristics, either being assigned female or male sex, in some cases intersex status if they have characteristics of sex development that don't align with traditional notions of female or male bodies. We now know that these children grow up, become children, adolescent, these infants grow up, become children, adolescents, and adults who may have a gender identity that doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned when they were born. So what is gender identity? It's a person's inner sense of being a girl, woman, boy, man, something else beyond girl or boy, or having no gender at all. We also appreciate that many people have what we refer to as a non-binary gender identity, a gender identity that doesn't fit one of society's two traditional binary options of either being a girl or being a boy. And this is the naturally occurring human diversity with regard to gender that's always existed. It's just now that in modern Western society, we happen to be making a little more room for it, but there are other countries and civilizations and eras in history when there was more inclusion of gender diversity societally. That's gender identity in a nutshell. It's your inner sense of your gender. Your gender expression is how you present or communicate your gender to the outside world. And this is through potentially your uh, mannerisms, the way you walk, the way you dress, your hairstyle, your voice. And gender expression is pretty complex as well. It's not necessarily the case that people assigned male sex at birth want to or ought to express their gender in a traditionally masculine way. It's not necessarily the case that people assigned female sex at birth want to or ought to express their gender in a traditionally feminine way. It's also dynamic. Someone may have a more feminine gender expression at school and a more masculine gender expression at home, for example. And it's cultural. What's considered feminine or masculine in one society is not necessarily the same in another. And it may seem like people with non-binary gender identities would be a very small fringe subpopulation. It turns out that's not the case. We did a study with 452 transgender folks in Massachusetts, 41% reported having a non-binary gender identity. And if we look at national data, the younger and younger the cohort you look at, younger and younger generations are more and more likely to have non-binary gender identities. So we're seeing more expression of the naturally occurring gender diversity that's always existed. 
what does the term transgender mean? I've used this a couple of times. It refers to someone whose gender identity doesn't align with society's expectations based on the sex they were assigned when they were born. A young person could have binary gender identity. So child assigned male sex of birth who identifies as a girl may identify as a transgender girl, a trans girl, simply as a girl. A child assigned female sex at birth who identifies as a boy may refer themselves as a transgender boy, a trans boy, simply as a boy. Non-binary people have a variety of ways of identifying. Some identify as non-binary, some will identify as gender queer. We also hear the term gender fluid, which implies a gender identity that's more dynamic and gonna evolve over time. We also use terms like transmasculine and transfeminine more and more. These are more inclusive of people with non-binary gender identities. So a transmasculine person is someone assigned female sex at birth who identifies more with masculinity than with femininity. They may identify in a traditional binary way as a boy, or they may not. Now that's gender identity in a nutshell. Sexual orientation is how a person identifies their physical, emotional, and romantic attachments to other people. And it's helpful to think about this in three components. The first component is desire. This is whether someone is attracted to other people and who they're attracted to. When I was uh, in medical school, we were trained to ask, are you attracted to women, men, or both? We really moved beyond that. Now we ask, do you have attractions to other people to make room for asexual and aromantic people? If the person says, yes, I do, then we might ask, who are you attracted to generally, or what are the genders of the people you're attracted to, to make room for the fact that there are more than two possible genders. Second component of sexual orientation is behavior, and this refers to whom someone is engaging in sexual activity with and what type of activity. Important to note, risk of sexually transmitted infections isn't based on identity, it's based on behavior and anatomy. So if someone identifies, say, as a man who has sex with men, that doesn't tell you anything about their body parts or what type of behavior they're engaging in or their partner's body parts. So you, you do need that information from a healthcare standpoint to understand just risk of um, sexually transmitted infections. The third component of sexual orientation is identity. This refers to the range of labels and communities that exist in society that a person may or may not identify with regarding their sexual orientation. Some of the more common ones are straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, asexual, pansexual. There are many more. We have a glossary of terms on our website, again, at lgbtqiahealtheducation.org that you can check out and download for more definitions. Now, what does the Q stand for? Q can stand for someone who's questioning their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, and hasn't settled on a particular one. Q can also stand for queer, which 100 years ago meant bizarre, strange, or odd. Mid 20th century became a derogatory term, a slur, a put down for uh, particularly gay and lesbian people. And then a couple of decades ago, the term was reclaimed by the community who said, well, you call us queer to hurt us. So now we're gonna call ourselves queer and we're gonna do it with pride so that you can't hurt us anymore. And lo and behold, there are queer studies departments in colleges around the country now. Big point to make is one of self-identification. We can't assume anyone's comfortable being called any given term without them saying so. So we can't assume based on someone's behavior or attractions that a young person is comfortable being identified as gay or queer or whatever the case may be. So we have to ask people how they identify what the term means to them and reflect a young person's own language back with them. Now to understand the problems that are experienced by LGBTQI plus youth in all aspects of life, and we use this a lot in clinical care and research and advocacy and policy, we use what's called the minority stress framework. The idea here is that LGBTQI plus youth developmentally from childhood through adolescence experience everyday discrimination, victimization, microaggressions, frank violence, unfortunately, at a much higher prevalence than the general population. And there's an intersectional aspect to this where 
Um, for example, the FBI has shown in recent years one of the populations with the highest incidence of hate crimes in the US are African-American young transgender women. So that's the horrific reality that many people are living with. We think of all this as external stigma-related stress that LGBTQI plus youth experience. That can lead over time for many people to disruptions in general psychological processes like coping skills, emotional regulation, interpersonal functioning, having certain beliefs that may be protective in the moment but actually perpetuate distress over time, like believing it's never gonna get better, nobody can be trusted, no one will ever love me. Now the external stigma-related stress can lead to internal stigma-related stress, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, expecting rejection because you're so used to it, and identity concealment to prevent mistreatment and abuse. All of this stigma-related stress and discrimination we think is related to what we see in the research, which is a higher prevalence of various behavioral health problems among the LGBTQI plus youth, like higher prevalence of depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorder, sometimes as a way to cope with all this stress. Decreased self-care, decreased engagement in healthcare, and down the road, a much higher prevalence of various physical health problems as well. Now, important to note, that doesn't have to be the case, right? The biggest predictor, I should say, of good health outcomes among LGBTQI plus youth and making sure that they have the same academic performance, mental health, physical health as their peers is strong family support. So it's really important to understand that strong family support can cultivate resilience as opposed to having LGBTQ identities um, present some kind of crisis in terms of being uh, affirmed and accepted in community. And we think about stigma in three components. There's stigma perpetrated between individuals. It can be from a member of a family to a child. It can be on the playground between kids. It can be from a member of a care team to a young LGBTQI plus patient, for example. There's structural stigma, which refers to institutional or governmental policies that intentionally or unintentionally restrict the opportunities and freedoms of certain groups of people, for example, access to all gender restrooms for trans and gender diverse youth in schools, or the ability for kids to play on sports teams that match their gender identity. Barriers to any of these are forms of structural stigma. And then there's intrapersonal stigma, which is the kind of internalized homophobia or transphobia I mentioned earlier. Uh, and this can lead to a lot of shame and social isolation for kids, even to some extent after they come out in terms of their sexual orientation or are affirmed in their gender identity. And you know, coming out for sexual minority youth uh, is something that is largely uh, psychosocial. For trans and gender diverse youth, being affirmed in their gender identity has a social component, a certainly psychosocial component, a legal component in terms of changing identity on gender markers, potentially medical component for puberty onward in terms of pubertal suppressant medication or gender affirming hormone therapy and then, and then surgery. So there are a lot of components to this and all these really involve strong family support to be able to make decisions and move forward. Important to note, this is from the US trans survey of 28,000 people across the country, including many people from Rhode Island. 10% of trans respondents reported a family member was violent towards them because of their identity. 8% were kicked out of the house because of their identity. Many experienced serious mistreatment in school, like being verbally harassed, physically attacked, or sexually assaulted because of their gender identity. And 17% experienced such severe mistreatment that they had to leave school before graduating. LGBTQ, well, I should say here specifically, children in sexual minority households with same-sex parents 
are especially vulnerable to poverty. African-American children in gay male households have the highest poverty type of any children in any household type. And the rate for children living with lesbian couples is 38%. So these are some of the social determinants that we refer to in terms of economic uh, disadvantage. The US trans survey here again, found that transgender people are much more likely to live in poverty compared to the general population, much higher unemployment, much lower home ownership, and higher likelihood of past uh, experiences of homelessness. And all of these forms of stigma and discrimination I just described, we know are associated with um, certain health risks, including stigma in the form of internalized homophobia and expecting discrimination and rejection are associated with higher HIV risk behaviors among men who have sex with men. And we know from another study we did at Fenway that transmasculine people are likely to delay uh, needed urgent and preventative care for fear of being mistreated by care teams with regard to their gender identity. LGBTQI plus youth are more likely to attempt suicide, more likely to experience homelessness, at high risk of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, uh, particularly for Black and Latinx uh, gained by sexual young men. If we focus on substance use specifically, youth who aren't supported by their families and schools and communities who are transgender and gender diverse are much more likely to use substances to cope with that mistreatment they experience in school and are likely to use substances if they're not able to access standard gender affirming medical care. So it's very stressful for young people to not be able to be affirmed uh, in, in terms of healthcare in their gender identity. There can be higher body image dissatisfaction as well. Trans and gender diverse youth have higher body dissatisfaction than their non-transgender or cisgender, as we say, counterparts. And there can be a drive for thinness, both among trans feminine people who've, for example, undergone an endogenous puberty to just physically be smaller, and among trans masculine people to not have curves that are traditionally associated with femininity and, you know, of modern Western society. Important to note that, again, with this national survey, 39% of respondents reported serious psychological distress in the past month, which is much higher than in the general population, and 40% attempted suicide in their lifetime, which is much higher than for any other studied population. Now, it's important to note if people are able to, people have strong family support and are able to access gender-affirming medical and surgical care, we see a significant decrease in risk of attempting suicide. So it's important to think about gender-affirming medical and surgical care and strongly supportive families as life-saving interventions and life-saving uh, care for trans and gender-diverse youth. Here we see that the risk of attempting suicide is higher for presumed cisgender sexual minority folks than it is for the general population, but it's even higher for gender minority folks than it is for sexual minority folks. And these are, again, just data from the U.S. Trans Survey showing that people are very likely to report negative experiences like being verbally harassed or refused treatment because of their identity, um, are likely to not seek care that they need for fear of being mistreated by healthcare providers, and are likely often to not go to a healthcare provider because they couldn't afford it in the context of familial discrimination, educational discrimination, employment discrimination, and housing discrimination that these populations experience. Most of these um, suicide attempts among trans folks are before the age of 25, as you can see here, and a large proportion are before the age of 13. So it's really important to be supportive and affirming of young people to mitigate this risk of attempting suicide. This is a paper we published last year in the Journal of Drama Psychiatry with that sample of 28,000 people. And this was looking at 
what we call uh, gender identity conversion efforts. This is called conversion therapy uh, in many settings and in popular you know, press. And um, we intentionally don't call it conversion therapy because therapy implies it's a legitimate therapeutic or clinical practice, which it is. And in fact, it's quite harmful as we'll see in a moment. And many states have passed laws uh, banning conversion efforts for LGBTQI plus youth. I know in Massachusetts, we had signed into law our uh, ban on conversion efforts in April of 2019. I think Rhode Island may have one. I'm not, I'm not sure though. Uh, we could look it up. And we found here that 14% of trans and gender diverse respondents had been exposed to conversion efforts in their lifetime. That people who were exposed to these conversion efforts had more than twice the odds of attempting suicide compared to people who didn't. And if people were exposed to conversion efforts before age 10, they had more than four times the odds of attempting suicide in their lifetime. So this goes to show as families and caretakers, we need to affirm young people's gender identities, not try to make transgender people cisgender, not try to change people away from being transgender or gender diverse. Interestingly, we found no difference in conversion efforts performed by a religious advisor versus a secular tech professional, like a psychotherapist. So it's not the religious component that's dangerous. It's any effort to try to change the person's gender identity from uh, transgender or gender diverse to cisgender. Study we published last year, this was looking at the relationship of pubertal suppression to suicidal ideation. So this is the use of gonadotropin releasing hormone analogs, puberty blockers as they're called in 10 or stage two of puberty, early puberty, to press pause on puberty for trans and gender diverse youth. Because when people develop secondary sex characteristics uh, at that age that don't align with their gender identity, that can be very distressing. And we often see an increase in suicide risk at that age for you know, folks in going through puberty. So these medications uh, press pause, you do then need to induce puberty in a timely way, but puberty that aligns with the child's gender identity. So that can be done with testosterone or estradiol. And you do want kids to go through puberty because their classmates are in school and you don't, you know, psychosocially, you want them developing at the same time as their classmates are. And uh, also for bone health, it's not good to not go through puberty. So th these are great uh, medications. We found that only two and a half percent of respondents who desired pubertal suppression ever received it. So most people weren't able to get it. And people who received pubertal suppression compared to those who desired it but didn't receive it had lower odds of lifetime suicidal ideation. So these medications were associated with decreased suicide risk uh, throughout the person's lifetime. This we published in just April of this year in the journal JAMA Surgery, and we were looking at the relationship between gender-affirming surgery and mental health outcomes. Again, we found most people who desired gender-affirming surgeries weren't able to access them. As you can see here, the dark bars are people who desired each of these procedures. The lighter bars are people who are actually able to access these procedures. And most people don't get them. So we need more access in general to these surgeries. But we did find that accessing gender-affirming surgeries compared to desiring them and not getting them was associated with lower odds of suicidality, substance use, and severe psychological distress. And we looked at people who desired, who received all of their desired gender-affirming surgeries versus people who just received some of their desired gender-affirming surgeries. And people who received all their desired surgeries had lower odds of suicide attempts, ideation, smoking, binge alcohol use, and severe psychological distress. So it's important to think of these as medically necessary interventions who, uh, that are life-saving. And these have been endorsed as medically necessary by the American Medical Association since 2008. Of course, 
necessary when the child desires them. It's not that everybody has to have surgery or everybody even wants surgery. Many trans and gender diverse people don't. We just published this paper this summer in the Journal of Adolescent Health. And we were really interested in looking at the relationship of the age at which trans and gender diverse youth are affirmed in their gender identity and mental health outcomes. Because there are a lot of people who say, well, children and adolescents are too young to know what their gender identity is. We shouldn't kind of let them decide if they are gonna socially transition until they're adults and then they can make their own decisions for them. Uh, that is kind of something you hear a lot. It actually goes against the American Academy of Pediatrics and many other organizations, the American Psychological and Psychiatric Associations that say you do need to psychosocially affirm you know, young people in their gender identity. Gender identity solidifies as young as two years old. So you'll have often, um, you know, children who uh, will tell you that they're a girl and want to wear dresses, even if they were assigned male sex at birth. And um, this does come up for very young kids and, and for adolescents. We found that people who were socially affirmed as children below age 10 or as adolescents had mental health outcomes in adulthood that were just as good as people who were affirmed in their gender in adulthood. So there's no mental health risk with affirming children when they're younger. In fact, we found that people who were affirmed as young children had lower likelihood of a cannabis use disorder in adulthood than people who were affirmed in adulthood. We did also find that the thing that's associated with worse mental health outcomes in adulthood for these trans and gender diverse adolescents is having K through 12 harassment. So if you come out as trans, as a teenager, the reason you may have worse mental health outcomes is if your school environment isn't safe and if you're being harassed and bullied and abused there. So we need to make efforts as communities to ensure that our schools are safe and affirming of all uh, teenagers, regardless of gender identity. If we do that and have safe schools, then mental health outcomes are just as good, whether folks come out and are affirmed as teenagers or as adults. Now, how do we overcome a lot of these barriers that I just presented? There are a few key points here. One is there are some great principles from the minority stress framework that I presented earlier that I use in my clinical work and that families can use as well. First, we can normalize the adverse impact of minority stress, right? Young people often attribute challenges in their lives to personal failing rather than to societal mistreatment or stigma or discrimination. So if we can help younger people correctly discern when a challenge in their life is due to minority stress, stigma, discrimination, that can be very liberating for them. We can facilitate emotional awareness, emotional regulation, and self-acceptance, a lot of those pathways that I showed in the minority stress uh, framework diagram. And these are things that you may be able to do just through parenting, and that's great. And you may also decide that you think your child um, might benefit from seeing a therapist, for example, which can be helpful. And a lot of the therapy in this area, when we're talking about coming out and, and being affirmed in uh, one's gender identity is and should be what we call exploratory therapy. This idea that the clinician, if they're working with a you know, LGBTQI plus youth, doesn't go in with a preconceived notion of what that child's uh, sex orientation or gender identity should be at the end of the process, right? We are letting them explore it and come to their own conclusions. You don't wanna be directing them in one way or another because then th that really is more like conversion th efforts that we talked about, which are quite dangerous. So exploratory therapy is open-ended, 
the clinician has no preconceived notion. I'm going to, you know, hopefully this kid ends up being straight, or hopefully this kid ends up being gay, or hopefully they end up being trans, or hopefully they end up not being trans. You can't, you can't have that bias going into it. We also want to empower assertive communication for better or for worse. LGBTQI plus people have to be advocates for themselves in healthcare and in life. So we do assertiveness training for people to engage not in passive communication, not in aggressive communication, but effective assertive communication to get their needs met. Restructuring certain minority stress beliefs, like challenging certain beliefs, certain beliefs that young people very often naturally have through these minority stress experiences that can seem protective in the moment, but are actually distressing over time, like believing this is never gonna get better. Nobody can be trusted. No one's ever gonna love me, right? And as family members, we can kind of gently um, reframe those things for them, right? You are gonna find someone who loves you. We love you. Um, this is going to get better. You can trust me. You know, who else can you trust? Let's think about your friends. So reducing some of that rigidity that can build up so that people feel less distress in this sometimes harrowing process of, of coming out or being affirmed in their gender identity. There was a public health campaign that started exactly a decade ago called It Gets Better that was designed to prevent queer and trans youth from attempting suicide. And I heard this June and for Pride Month, President uh, Biden and uh, second gentleman, uh, Doug Emhoff filmed their It Gets Better uh, public health campaign videos. So that campaign is alive and well for exactly this, this reason. Validating unique strengths of LGBTQI plus people. It's not all bad, right? This is a population with enormous resilience that's overcome tremendous obstacles, achieved greater and greater integration into the mainstream fabric of US society. This year we had confirmed the first two out LGBTQI plus cabinet members uh, with the Secretary of Transportation, who's now a gay man, and uh, Assist Assistant Secretary for Health and Human Services, who's a transgender woman. So if we can help particularly younger people feel connected to that broader resilience and strength of the community, that can be very empowering as well. Fostering supportive relationships and community, that can be with other LGBTQI plus youth and with allies. Often this starts online where people don't have a lot of necessarily local access to out visible LGBTQI plus peers. And once people are able to get enough validation online, they often feel emboldened enough to seek out more in-person um, community. Affirming healthy and rewarding expressions of gender and sexuality. We, you know, just as a clinician, I have time in my week, right? I see a lot of trans and gender diverse patients and I have patients who are still exploring their gender expression, for example, they'd be in the waiting room wearing clothing traditionally associated with the sex they were assigned when they were born. They'll come back to the clinical area, change in the restroom. We'll do the session with them wearing a dress for the first time ever, for example, process what that experience is like. At the end of the session, they'll go back into the restroom, change and leave the health center in the clothes they came in with. So it, it's a position of great privilege we have to create a safe space for identity, exploration, discovery, and affirmation. And you can definitely do that in your home as well. As we've seen, LGBTQI plus youth have a history of experiencing a lot of stigma and discrimination. Don't be surprised if you say something even well-intentioned as a family member and young person becomes upset. Don't personalize the reaction. You can apologize, say, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to be disrespectful and correct yourself. That can go a long way towards diffusing a difficult situation and reestablishing a constructive dialogue. Pronouns are critically important for engaging with young people in an affirming way. And you know, there are pronouns that we more traditionally have been familiar with perhaps that are more binary, like he, him, his, or she, her, hers. 
many non-binary people's pronouns now and young people's pronouns now increasingly are they, them, theirs in the singular. So you'd say they are in the waiting room, the doctor's ready to see them, that chart is theirs, for example. It takes practice, you may be used to using it in the plural, you may, you'll make mistakes initially practicing, just apologize, say I'm sorry and correct yourself if you're not used to using it that way. Some people get tripped up on the grammar. Um, in 2019, they, them, theirs was the Merriam-Webster word of the year. Uh, in the singular, so it's you know officially a word in the dictionary now. And then a lot of young people are using neo pronouns developed by and for non-binary communities, like Z here, here, so that you see here. It just takes practice. It takes a commitment to ensuring that you're asking a young person what their pronouns are and using those pronouns and letting other people who are going to interact with the person in question know that those are the pronouns. These are some of the questions that clinicians increasingly are asking patients to explore sexual orientation and gender identity. These are questions that are becoming standardized within, say, pediatric practice or adolescent medicine practice for younger children, three to 12 years old, with regard to gender identity. I'd say something like some kids feel like a girl on the inside, some kids feel like a boy on the inside, some kids feel like neither, both, or someone else. How about you? How do you feel on the inside? There's no right or wrong answer. For adolescents, Something like, what's your current gender identity? Some teens feel like a girl or a woman on the inside. Some kids feel like a boy or man on the inside. Some feel like neither, both or another gender. How about you? There's no right or wrong answer. I should say that clinicians are often um, planning to have these conversations in private so they get a more candid answer. So that part of a pediatric visit where they ask you to leave as a parent is in part to have these sorts of conversations with young people. They're also you know, screening for other things that need to be done in private. But uh, the recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics is to uh, have a portion of the visit with just the patient themselves, not with the caretaker, to be able to have these conversations. And for sexual orientation, you know, similarly, questions for pre-adolescents. Have you ever had a crush on someone? Is this crush on a boy, a girl, both, or someone of another gender? And for adolescents, are you physically or emotionally attracted to boys, girls, both, neither, another gender, or are you not sure yet? We all have language that we use that's gendered in terms of assumptions you know, within it that are uh, implicit we're not even aware of. So there, there's a, an opportunity to look at that, to reflect, to unpack the language we use and use less gendered language when speaking with um, young people or, or in general, um, because it can slip through and we don't expect it. So knowing that we can't assume someone's gender identity or sexual orientation or our own family member or young you know, child's gender identity or sexual orientation based on how they look or how they sound. These are some of the types of changes that we make in our work and how we refer to people. Instead of saying something like, how may I help you young man or may I help you young woman, just saying, Hello, may I, how may I help you? Instead of saying he or she is here for his or her appointment, saying something in our line of work like the patients here in the waiting room, instead of asking, do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? asking, are you in a relationship in general? And uh, not making assumptions about family members people come from as well. Some people come from a family with mom and a dad. Some people have two moms, two dads, one mom, one dad, you know, guardian rather than a parent, for example. And generally helpful to try to keep up with terminology, obviously avoiding using any disrespectful language or slurs, uh, not making comments about a young person's appearance uh, or behavior that are uh, demeaning and can be taken really harshly. And sometimes we'll say things to young people to try to have rapport with them and make a connection, but can actually be off topic or, or hurtful to the young person. Saying something like, you look great, you look like a real girl, real guy, may or may not be what that young person wants to hear or what their goal is. Some terms we generally stay away from because they're outdated are 
terms like homosexual in English, which is a term imposed by medical communities on sexual minority people. Instead, we want to reflect back whatever language youth are using individually to identify themselves. We don't use the term transvestite anymore, which is a term that referred historically to people who are clothing traditionally designed for someone of another uh, gender. It doesn't have to do with the person's own gender identity. And we don't use the term transgendered. That was never a word ending in ED, which makes it sound like there was an event that made the person transgender, which is not the case. So instead we use the term transgender ending in ER. And it's always an adjective, never a noun. So we say, she is a girl of transgender experience or those transgender people. We don't say she is a transgender or those transgenders. So always an adjective, never a noun and never ED at the end. And we don't use the term sexual preference or lifestyle choice. Instead, we use the term sexual orientation to convey that this is a fundamental core part of a person's identity and lifestyle choice we can reserve for the upholstery you choose for your sofas or where you go on vacation. And we you know, can try to create a culture of accountability within our homes, within our schools, within our care settings. And that requires everyone working together and politely correcting one another when we make insensitive comments so that we are kind of staying sharp in this regard and, and all committed to um, affirming and supporting people of diverse identities. Important in schools and really in any building for there to be an all gender restroom uh, so that trans and gender diverse youth don't have to feel debilitated being away from their home in terms of having to use the restroom. I invite you all to advocate for that in uh, the school systems that your kids are in if it's not already the case. Even at our hospital, Mass General Hospital in Boston, now two and a half years ago, we switched all single occupancy restrooms to all gender and there's discussion of switching multiple occupancy restrooms over as well. Looking at the forms in your school or at your pediatrician's office or at a medicine doc's office, you can give them feedback if the forms aren't totally inclusive. And we, this is one of the many tools on our website focused on forms and policy to make sure that these are gonna be inclusive of all families and all young people. Instead of terms like mother and father, the forms should use terms like parent or guardian instead of husband or wife spouse or partner, instead of marital status, relationship status, instead of family history, term like blood relative, instead of nursing mother, currently nursing, they're trans men, trans masculine people, non-binary people who chest feed as well. And instead of having sections marked female only or male only, that would lead someone to skip over a set of questions that may actually apply to them to allow folks to choose not applicable on forms. An important part of this is to mitigate the adverse impact of implicit bias. We all have implicit bias against a uh, number of groups and identities, including LGBTQI plus people. And we have a lot of case-based scenarios and tools to help folks work through their own implicit bias and realize the adverse impact that can have on their communication with people, their rapport with people, and therapy.